Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for March 2nd, 2023. I'm Shelby Herbert. You're listening to KFSK. The Biden administration is expected to announce soon whether it will approve the ConocoPhillips permit for Willow, a major oil drilling project in the National Petroleum Reserve. Rallying for the project at the U.S. Capitol today, Alaska Native leaders stood with the state's congressional delegation wearing Willow Yes lapel stickers. Independent Representative Josiah Putkatuk from the North Slope said revenues from the oil production will support rural communities and a culture that is dependent on subsistence whaling and hunting. Talk about environmental justice and uh, protecting the environment that uh, us Alaska Natives, we're part of that environment. We always have been and we always will be. And that's why it's important to underscore the opportunities for a better quality of life, staying away from the third world conditions that the generation immediately bo- before me grew up in. Over its 30-year lifespan, Willow is projected to produce as much as $10 billion in revenue for the state and the North Slope Borough. Alaska Congresswoman Mary Peltola says Peltola says the administration should listen to her constituents, particularly the consensus opinion of the Inupiaq people of the Arctic. This is their region. This is their land. This is about their sovereignty and their autonomy to go forward with their um, economic development, which will help the state of Alaska. It will help residents across our state. Environmental groups say approving the Willow Project would be the wrong move for an administration committed to slowing climate change and transitioning to an economy based on renewable energy. A decision could come as early as next week. The state of Alaska is proposing to sell more old-growth trees on its land in southern southeast Alaska. As Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports, state managers say they're obligated to conduct the sales despite pushback from community members. The State Department of Natural Resources' five-year harvest plan proposes timber sales equaling about 62 million board feet. That includes clear-cutting about 2,600 acres of old-growth trees. The old-growth is is marketable currently. Greg Staunton is the state's area forester for Southeast. The Division of Forestry seeks timber sales as part of its constitutional mandate to pursue using natural resources on public lands. Old-growth logging is controversial for its impacts on the environment and subsistence food sources, like deer and salmon. The U.S. Forest Service froze old-growth sales in 2021, and this year restored the roadless rule, protecting thousands of old-growth acres from logging. But federal protections don't apply to state land. And Staunton says the state doesn't have much choice. He says there just isn't much marketable young growth available in the state's inventory. The proposed sales are in a dozen main areas in the region. Some projects could get started as soon as this year, and others are still in review. Most are near towns. Staunton says that's where the state owns land in southeast. A lot of the land base that we've been charged with managing here is in uh, proximity to where communities are. And that, that's a product of how we were granted um, land um, at statehood. One logging project that's set to begin this year is a controversial timber sale in Whale Pass on Prince of Wales Island. 
The state would clear-cut about 300 acres of old growth near town and build four new miles of logging roads. That decision has been made. I think we have a product out there that's workable. Um, you know, it, it does not satisfy all people that are, you know, brought their concerns forward. I recognize that. Some of the whale pass logging is within city limits, and most residents oppose it. Stoughton says he takes public feedback seriously. He says they've walked the site and considered any potential risks. In the end, it's state land. While it's, it's adjacent to the community of whale pass, we recognize that. Um, is also uh, legislatively classified state forest. So that's one of its purpose is to be used for providing forest resources, of which, you know, timber is one of the key things that it's meant to provide. Jimmy Greeley is with the homeowners group Friends of Whale Pass. He spoke with KRBD last fall. Basically, it would cut the whole clear, clear cut the hillside and then kind of make whale pass not look very very green anymore. Another group in opposition is the Prince of Wales Community Advisory Council, representing over a dozen communities and tribal governments on the island. They wrote a letter to the state with concerns that the logging is above homes. They thought to themselves, surely they can't be serious. That's Katie Rooks. She's with the environmental group Southeast Alaska Conservation Council. They oppose the state's entire five-year plan for several reasons. She says the clear-cutting would scar up land near communities that are pursuing tourism, and there are some projects that are listed as TBD to be decided. There's a lot of ambiguity, okay? There's a lot of incomplete information with this particular state five-year plan. For several of these sales, they don't list the acreage, the board feet, or the road miles. In fact, they say in here that the uh, the last three years of projected sales in this document are uncertain. The state's timber sales in southern southeast cater to two main logging companies, Alcan and Ketchikan, and Viking Lumber on Prince of Wales Island. The two have been requesting the harvests. Stoughton says smaller mills couldn't build the infrastructure needed. Well, in the larger sales where there is significant road to be built, um, bigger companies... You know, they have more capital resources that they can bring to bear. The state's Southeast Timber Sale Plan is described in a 36-page document that includes project maps and other details. The public comment deadline is listed as February 28th, but Staunton says they'll continue to accept feedback beyond that. Reporting for Coast Alaska, in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. Sunday night was clear on the Kenai Perfect conditions for viewing the Aurora Borealis. A spectacular green and purple display was visible across the state from 7 p.m. Saturday to 6 a.m. Monday. For local photographers, last weekend's northern lights were also an opportunity to get out their cameras. Riley Board talked to two seasonal local photographers about what to do when those lights come out and how to capture the quintessential Alaska image Colette Gilmore is the founder of Kenai Camera and Coffee, a local photography collective. She says this weekend, the group came alive. When you get into February, our mindsets kind of get harder to go outside. Uh, Motivation goes way down. So when the Aurora came out, it kind of brought us all back up and we all shared in that experience. 
Gilmore says whether they just took photos with phone cameras from their back porches or headed out to prime locations with all sorts of equipment, members from across the group found the night to be really special. They're all great in their own unique ways. Gilmore's first piece of advice for local amateur photographers looking to capture the aurora is to be dressed for the weather and prepare to be out in the cold for a while. Scott Moon, a professional photographer based in Kenai, says he saw the northern lights for the first time as a teenager and has had his eye on the sky ever since. He says the best spot in town for aurora viewing is on Marathon Road in Kenai or on any back road just outside of Kenai or Soldatna. And he says the most important consideration is getting away from any city lights, which will make it harder for both the human eye and camera to get a good picture. Moon also suggests having something in the foreground, like trees, mountains, or buildings, to keep the photos interesting, although he warns that power lines can ruin a picture. And he says once you're out, you can never take too many pictures, because the lights are always moving and changing. Moon and Gilmore both suggest using a tripod to keep the camera steady and avoid blurry photos, because the shutter usually needs to stay open for a few seconds. A tripod definitely helps your camera or your phone stay still, and that's what's going to get you the sharpness with those long exposures. And for phone photographers, Gilmore says there are great apps designed to help shoot the aurora and recommends downloading one to take the guesswork out of the process. But Gilmore also says sometimes experiencing the aurora with your own eyes is the best way to do it. You don't want to lose yourself in trying to get all your technology out and get a picture and and lose what Mother Nature is giving you, not to be corny, (laughs) but you want to just enjoy it and have fun. Cloudy conditions for the next couple days will probably prevent aurora viewing. In Kenai, I'm Riley Board. Wrangell's government is speaking out against a petition to put Southeast Alaska wolves on the federal endangered species list. The Wrangell Assembly unanimously approved a resolution this week urging the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service not to list the wolves of Alexander Archipelago as endangered. The resolution, the resolution pushes the federal government to consider recent restrictions on development in the Tongass. It also cites data collected by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, which opposes the potential endangered designation as well. Three environmental groups filed the petition to put wolves on the endangered species list in 2020. They argue that southeast wolves are genetically distinct and at risk of extinction due to loss of habitat and food sources, primarily Sitka black-tailed deer. This is the third time the area's wolves have been considered for a place on the endangered species list. The first two times, Fish and Wildlife didn't find it was warranted. But in 2021, they agreed that southeast wolves might need more protections. Wrangell's resolution joins a petition filed by the Klawak Fishing Game Advisory Committee and signed by individuals and organizations throughout Alaska. In its resolution, the Wrangell Assembly lays out a number of reasons for why it opposes the designation. One is that wolves are highly mobile and move between the mainland, through Wrangell and onto other islands of the archipelago. Moreover, the borough doesn't, doesn't support the designation of the wolves of southeast as a distinct subspecies of wolf in the first place. 
Wrangell's resolution also argues that Southeast communities would suffer with a decrease of subsistence and sport hunting, as well as bear regulatory burdens if the wolves were protected under the Federal Endangered Species Act. Testing of 16 lakes and other waters in the Fairbanks North Star Borough and municipality of Anchorage found varying levels of PFAS, that is P-F-A-S. As Dan Bross reports, the the testing expands knowledge about water contamination in both areas by the so-called forever chemicals. The 16 waters tested include nine lakes, a creek, a slough, a pond, and three gravel pits. The PFAS contamination ranged from a low of 2.8 parts per trillion in Belaine Lake in Fairbanks to 952 PPT in Lake Spinard in Anchorage. The data is compiled in a report by Alaska Community Action on Toxics. The report reflects samples that we took in water bodies in Anchorage and the Fairbanks North Star Borough in 2021 and 2022. We detected... PFAS in all of the water bodies that we tested. ACAD Executive Director Pam Miller says the test results raise concerns about exposure through associated groundwater wells and recreational use. These are waters that people use for fishing in some cases or for pets. In some cases, people use them for swimming. So we think that this is really a critical public health issue. PFAS compounds bioaccumulate, and Miller says there are already state fish consumption advisories in effect for some of the waters tested. The levels that we found in most of the water bodies, both in Anchorage and the Fairbanks North Star Borough, are similar to water concentration levels that had been measured by the state of Alaska that resulted in the ADF&G consumption advisories. Miller urges the Alaska legislature to approve a bill that would require airports to phase out use of PFAS-containing firefighting foams, a primary cause of ground and surface water contamination. But we also need enforceable and health-protective drinking water standards for PFAS as a class. And then we need surface water action levels to protect aquatic life and public health because we know these chemicals can affect our health at extremely low exposure levels. The Division of Spill Prevention and Response at DEC is going to be working on a regulation package to um, update the cleanup levels. Alaska Department of Environmental Conservation Site Cleanup Manager Bill O'Connell says the agency will use the latest science to develop the new PFAS regulations. As toxicity data becomes better and more defensible, that allows the state to use that toxicity data to establish cleanup levels. O'Connell says the updated regulations could be out as soon as late this spring. He says the DEC oversees response to PFAS contamination at 140 active sites in the state. Meanwhile, the EPA recently announced the award of nearly $19 million to Alaska to address PFAS drinking water contamination. An agency release says the money will be distributed through grants to communities. In Fairbanks, and Dan Bross. My name is Shelby Herbert, and you're listening to KFSK.